Well, good morning. If you will, turn with me to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Someone will magically bring you a Bible. Or you can cheat and use a phone. Exodus chapter 3, we're going to be in there and chapter 4. Now, as you go there, my, my guess is, if you're older than 30, uh, you remember exactly where you were 20 years ago yesterday. Uh, I, I, was in, I was at the dentist, and I'm pretty sure that that morning I got the worst teeth cleaning of my entire life. With good reason. The dentist was a bit preoccupied. The hygienist, I mean, I was, all of us, our eyes were glued to the television screen behind us. Uh, 20 years ago yesterday was September 11th, 2001. And we were watching a plane crash into one of the World Trade Centers. And then about 30 minutes later, another plane crashed into the other building And soon, both buildings collapsed. Then we heard that another plane crashed into the Pentagon, another crashed in Philadelphia, and it felt like, as we were sitting there, that just like the sky was falling. Well, at that time, I was a senior in high school, so you could actually date me now, so be careful with that math. But I was a senior in high school, and so I drove to school, and I went into a history class. I remember sitting in that history class and looking at my teacher... Miss Gerard, and just knowing, just as I was looking at her face, reading her face, that she believed that everything had changed. I'm certain she didn't know all that would change in the ensuing months and years, but you could just read it on her face that the world was different now. Things had changed. This, this morning, I want to talk to you about change. I, I want to talk to you about the how necessary change is, how inevitable change is, and in many ways how hard change can be. That is what these two chapters in the book of Exodus are all about. are about change. We left off in chapter 2 of Exodus, and, and God's people are in Egypt. And they're sort of perpetually being oppressed. It's wave after wave after wave of injustice and oppression and enslavement. And they're crying out to God. And we learned that, that God has risen up this, this, this instrument of God's deliverance, Moses. But we also leave with Moses fleeing for his life up in Midian. And so we end in chapter 2 with God's people and their voices and their cries rising up to God. And God hearing their voices. And God ends in chapter 2 saying... That he heard their voices and that change was coming. God heard their cries, heard their pain, saw their suffering, and God said, change is coming. Just you wait. Change was a coming. Every week I try to summarize in a big idea what, these, uh, what, what our text is about. And if you look behind me, The big idea, if I could summarize these two chapters, would simply be this, and we're going to break it up into three sections. God calls a reluctant leader to deliver his people as a sign of his faithfulness. 
We're going to look at God's calling to Moses. We're going to also look at God's, uh, or how Moses is really a quite reluctant leader as the calling of God comes to him. And then we're just going to see God's faithfulness. God keeps giving promises. There are dozens of promises in these three, uh, in these two chapters, and God keeps showering Moses and God's people with promises. And we're going to see actually God deliver in faithfulness on these promises. We're going to break down, like I said earlier, this section into three sections, and they're not going to be equal sections. Um, the middle section is by far the, the most text. But, but I also don't just want you to see God's calling and a reluctant leader and God's faithfulness. I want you to actually see three aspects of God's character that are really on display in light of this big idea. I, I want us to see God's goodness in light of this calling that God places on Moses. I want to see, as Moses is reluctant to this calling, I want us to see how God is patient, even when we push back on God's calling, even when we're reluctant on what God is doing in our lives. And thirdly, I want us to see God's faithfulness. God speaks promises. And I want us to see that when God speaks, we can take that word to the bank. So we're going to look at the goodness of God, the patience of God, and the faithfulness of God in light of this big idea. Because really, when you think about it, chapter 2 ends with God's people in pain and suffering. And then it begins with God's people, um, and particularly Moses, just not wanting to be a part of God's plan to rescue his people out of the slavery in Egypt and bring them into the promised land. And so that's, that's the starting point. But if you go there just for a moment... This Texas bookend in chapter 4, the last verse, it says, and, and the people believed. They believed God. And when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel, they bow, and he heard their afflictions, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So how do you get that sort of change? How, how do you get a people who are discouraged and sad and in trials and not thinking that God is going to uh, show up? And two chapters later, they believe and they're worshipping God. How, how do you... How do you come up with that sort of change? Well, the answer to that is in the guts of our text. All change comes by way of a confrontation. On 9-11, we were confronted with reality, and therefore we changed. Change comes by being confronted by an experience, or I might say the greatest changes come when you're confronted by a person. And that's what we find here this morning. God confronts Moses and his people, and they are forever changed. And that is really my prayer for us today, that we are confronted by the goodness, the patience, and the faithfulness of God, and leave different people. Go with me to chapter 3. We're going to read the first 10 verses. Now Moses, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see the great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, 
for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, pretty much all the ites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you may bring, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. We'll stop there. So chapter 3 starts with Moses. He's tending his flock. He's got a, a good thing going for him up in Midian. He's got a wife. He's got kids. He's got a job. And he's tending his flock, and he comes to a particular mountain. And if you notice there in verse 1, the mountain is called the mountain of God. Now, it's called that for many reasons. One of the reasons is that this is perhaps one of the most important settings in the Old Testament. This is going to come up again in Exodus 19. This is where God meets Moses and gives the Ten Commandments. This is one of the most important settings in your Bible. So it is, in that sense, God's mountain. But more than just that God sort of owns this, it's not just that God has rights on this mountain, it's that God resides on this mountain. That's what we see in verse 2 and verse 3, right? Moses, as he's on this, on this mountain, as he's tending his flea, uh, he, he sees this bush, and he sees it, it's a bush that he's, like he's never seen before, right? It's a bush that is on fire, and yet the bush is not consumed by the fire. Now, what is this? Or maybe put, who is this? Well, this is a theophany, which is just a technical term for an appearance of God. God has appeared to Moses. And this is actually, when you think about it, how God often is described when he meets with his people. Later on in the book of Exodus, God is going to meet his people again, particularly Moses, and it's described with thunder and fire. We just finished the book of Acts. Remember in Acts 2, Pentecost? God comes down like fire. When God appears often, there's fire-like language, which I just might add as an aside, I think tells us something about the character of God. Fire is beautiful, right? When you see the, 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 the embers just dancing, it's, it's beautiful. You, you can get warm by fire, but you can also get burned by fire. God is both beautiful and lovely and glorious, and yet at the same time, he is holy and dangerous. Well, out out of this bush, God speaks. And God tells Moses, don't come close. It's dangerous. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. And then God says, this is who I am. God kind of self-discloses who he is. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at that, Moses is terrified. And he does what anyone who is gripped by fear does. He tries to hide himself. Well, it just actually sort of gets even more terrifying from there. God then sets out his plan. 
He, he says, Moses, I, 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 I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to rescue my people from out of the land of the Egyptians and into a land of people who it does not belong to. I'm going to bring them to a good and broad and glorious land. And then he says the most terrifying thing in verse 10, doesn't he? He turns to Moses and says, and you're going to do it. You're going to be the instrument of my rescue. And at that, Moses, if he wasn't afraid before, he is utterly terrified now. Verse 10 is that scary thing for Moses. It is where fear begins to cripple him. And we're going to see this again and again. And so I just want you to park this because it's going to be even more manifest in our second section in this book. But even in the midst of this sort of fear, even in the midst of this glorious calling that God has put before Moses, God is so good to Moses. That really is the characteristic that is most on display in these 10 verses. God's goodness Let me just point out a few. God shows up to Moses, right? God doesn't have to, but he does. God speaks to Moses, which means that God wants to have a relationship with Moses and his people. You can't have a relationship without communication. And so by by, by just the, the nature of God just disclosing who he is and also talking to him and explaining the plan, what God is doing is saying, I want a relationship, a covenantal relationship with you. But then you also see a repeated theme that we saw in chapter 2, but then we see repeated again and again. We see it in verse 7. It says that God heard the affliction of his people. He heard their cry there in verse 7. God hears his people. God is not just so holy that he stands distant. God actually in our pain, hears our cries. That's God's goodness. God is good in a technical term, meaning that God showers his people, his creation, his creatures with goodness, good gifts, good blessings. It is an essential characteristic of God himself. He is good. And yet, in some ways, I wonder if this aspect of God, that this characteristic of God is sometimes the hardest for us to believe. Especially in light of the context we see in chapter 3, and especially in the light of the context of many of our lives in various times and seasons. Which is the times of suffering and hardship. When when suffering comes, when, when trials come, when hardships come, it's sometimes quite difficult to believe that God is good even in the midst of our suffering. I mean, just put yourself in these Israelite shoes. They are in Egypt for decades after decades of oppression and wave after wave of pain and hardship. And they're beginning to wonder, is God good in any of this? As they're crying out to God, they're wondering, is God good? They've had little reprieve from suffering. I mean, this is, when you think about it, the greatest, at least experiential, the greatest sort of apologetic or or one of the greatest hardships of defending God or believing sometimes or not believing in the existence of God, which is 
the problem of evil, right? The problem of suffering and hardship. It's hard to believe that God is good when we're experiencing suffering and hardship. And yet, in one sense, experientially, right, we can all give examples where good comes out of bad situations. I mean, I remember when my son had um, his tonsils out. And, and when we got back, we got medicine that he needed to swallow that would actually help him. Right? That medicine was a good gift. And so my wife and I, we did everything we could in order to talk him in to explain that this gift, this medicine was good and it would help him. And yet I've had my tonsils removed. And every time you take a, you swallow, it's like swallowing knives. And so we couldn't sometimes explain that this medicine was good. That, that, that the momentary pain of swallowing it had a good effect in the end. I mean, we could all give experiences and examples of that, couldn't we? Where good things came out of bad things. But that doesn't make suffering any easier, does it? That doesn't make suffering any easier. And yet, God nevertheless is good. And in the midst of this, let me just give you one sort of pastoral encouragement. One kind of wonderful thing, and we really see it in verse 9. If you look at verse 9, perhaps the greatest expression of God's goodness takes place in verse 9. God says to Moses, I know they're suffering, and I have come down to deliver them. Do you know how astonishing that is? All religions boil down to this. It's an attempt to figure out how we can get up to God. By, by, by moral effort, by rituals. Okay, what, what do we need to do and not do in order to get up to God, to get him to notice us and to get our little, little square of paradise. And at Christianity is unique in this reality. This is God coming down to man. God hearing the pain and suffering of mankind, and it says that God came down to us. And if you want to know the ultimate expression of that reality, isn't it the incarnation of Jesus Christ? God sending his own son to come down to us, to to live amongst us, to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life, and then die as our substitute. This is why we call the, the gospel good news. That's what it literally means. It's good because God came down and we don't have to go up to God. He's done all the work for us. All we have to do is turn to him in belief. It's wonderful. God is good. He is, as Isaiah says, he is the suffering servant who is familiar with pain. He enters into our pain. He hears our cries, enters into our pain. What a comfort that can be. And yet, sometimes, even though we know that intellectually, it's really hard to believe it just in our own lives, isn't it? In, in, when I was in sixth grade, there was an elementary teacher that had a poster. And on that, uh, in his classroom, the poster had three class rules. Rule one, the teacher is always right. Rule two, Sometimes the teacher is wrong. Rule three, if the teacher is wrong, refer back to rule number one. The teacher is always right. Okay? It was a joke. I didn't like it when I was in sixth grade. 
But there's some truth in this. I think there's some helpful, theological, practical discipleship truth in this. And it's simply this. God is good. Premise one. Sometimes in the midst of suffering and hardship, it doesn't feel like God is good. Premise two. Premise three. If that is the case, go back to premise one and cling to it. God is good. And I think that's why we have the church, isn't it? Isn't that why we gather together? Isn't that why we have a church covenant together that says we will share one another's burdens and sorrows? Because if you're anything like me, what I need is a brother and sister in the midst of my pain, like Job, is to sit in my pain as I articulate my pain and suffering. And I need a brother and sister to wait for a moment, to to, to, to let me get it all out. And then when appropriate, to point me to the God who is good, even in the midst of my pain and suffering. That's why we need the church. That's why we can't do Christianity alone. We need brothers and sisters to help us in our pain and remind us of the God who hears our cries, who then comes down to us in our pain and in his goodness loves us. Well, that's the first point. The first point is that God calls Moses and that calling is an expression of his goodness. But second, and this is the biggest point and we're not going to read all of it, I want us to look at this reluctant Moses. Now, just structurally speaking, starting in verse 11 down through uh, verse 17 of chapter 4, it's structured with a conversation. God is talking with Moses. And it's really simple, right? If you read this, you'd see it. That, that in light of this calling, that, God, that Moses would be God's instrument to redeem and rescue and deliver Israel from Egypt— Moses is going to give four different reasons why God is off his rocker. God's going to, or Moses is going to tell God four reasons why he's got the wrong man. And then in light of that, God is going to respond to Moses four times with comfort and patience and promises. So look with me with chapter three. We'll just read the end of chapter um, three, starting in verse 11. Here's Moses' first kind of rebuke to God. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But but I, this is God now, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent to you. You, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent to me. Here's his, his second pushback. Um, then God, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to my people, to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I, have, will, that I will do in it. And after that, we'll let you go. And I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall go to go. You will, shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. We'll stop there. There's then two more cycles of this, starting in chapter four, verse one, where Moses then gives his sort of rebuke to God why he's wrong, and then God then reassures Moses that actually he didn't get it wrong. Moses is the man. So Moses sort of hears this plan. He's going to go back to Egypt, and then Moses says, I'm definitely not the man. If you go there to verse 11 of chapter 3, Moses basically says, I'm not the guy for the job. Then in verse 13, Moses says, I don't even know what your name is. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses says, uh, no one's going to believe me. They're, they're going to laugh at me. Then in chapter 4, verse 10, Moses basically says, um, uh, uh, I'm not good at speaking. And evidently in Midian, there weren't very many speech therapists. And so he's not the man for the job. Moses is basically saying, I'm not going to go. I can't speak. I can't be believed. I have discredited myself. I'm a fugitive on the run. There is no way I'm the guy for the job. He's been in for 40 years in Midian, doing his thing, living his life, having his family, living the Midianite, Amer- Midianite dream. Obviously, Moses is not the right man for the job. I mean, can't you relate to Moses, right? Isn't Moses really relatable in this? This outrageous call comes to, to him, and he's like, no, you got the wrong guy, right? I can't even pass a spelling test. Moses is really relatable. Think of all the sacrifices that he's got to make in order to go back to Egypt. And yet, God still calls to him. And in many ways, God still calls to us. I mean, Moses is unique. My guess is that none of you will have an experience like Moses. You're not going to walk up on a mountain and see a bush on fire and hear this. This is a one-time thing in redemptive history. And yet the call of God comes to us all. And they're lofty calls. Make disciples of all nations. Love your neighbor. Forgive your enemies. Right? Be hospitable. You know, spouses, love your spouse and die to them and sacrifice for them. Find your identity not in all the other things that the world finds your identity in, but find your identity in Christ. I mean, just think of all of the things that come to us, all the calling of God in the New Testament and in your entire Bible. They are lofty. They're hard. 
And it's easy to just be like Moses and say, too high. That bar is way too high. You got the wrong person for the job. And yet, God then responds, not once, not twice, not thrice, four times when Moses says, I'm not the guy. God says, oh, you're the guy. Right? Every time Moses says, I can't, God says, you can. Every time Moses says, I am not the man for the job, what does God say? He says, I am the man for the job. Every time Moses points out his insufficiencies, God says, I am sufficient to accomplish my master plan. Moses says, no one's going to believe me. And he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if no one believes you because I am going to actually speak for you. I'm going to give you signs. I'm going to do all the work for you. I promise to deliver my people and you're the man for the job. Moses had a lot of reasons why. We can all relate to Moses. And yet God is everything Moses needs. God is everything Moses is not and more. You see, Moses isn't called because he's worthy. It's not just like, oh, oh, just the perfect, he's just perfectly righteous. No, actually, in many ways, he's called because he's unworthy, because he's going to need to depend on God to do the very things, right? It's not like at one point he gives him a sign and he says, throw down your staff and it turns into a, a snake, right? I mean, Moses can't do that. But Moses does this only because God does it through Moses. It's, it's his unworthiness. It's his inability that makes Moses the right man for this job. Now, earlier we talked about God's goodness. And, and really here we, we see God's patience, right? God's just patience over and over again with, with Moses that as he talks about his insecurities and his fears, when he says, like, I'm not the guy, God meets him in the midst of that and says, no, you are the guy. I, I think it's wonderful that as Moses talks to God, prays to God, explains and, and just kind of shares his insecurities with God, God doesn't just whack him. But he's patient with him. Now, we creatures, we lack patience all the time, right? Like we're on our, on our phones and if something doesn't load, load in like two seconds, we just give up and protest. Not God. Not God at all. God's sovereignty, his way of ruling the world is such though, and this is what makes God's sovereignty so amazing, that he works in the midst of people's sin and weaknesses and insecurities and he gets what he wants out even in the midst of those things. And I think by way of extension, when we see God's patience to Moses, I think this, especially in this season, but in every season, I think this is one of the greatest gifts that we can give each other. Patience. All of us are figuring out stuff. All of us are trying to navigate what does faithfulness look like in this season for our families, for our church, for our communities. And we need patience. Right? It can be so easy to just jump on someone if they maybe say the wrong thing or did the wrong thing. And then we have our little Twitter feed where we just... But what we need right now is patience. Right? 
I mean, we can all remember those, those times in which maybe we were a new Christian, we were just walking with Christ, and we said something. Now, looking back, we're like, that was heretical, right? There was no way that that was even truth. And yet, we needed men and women to just be patient with us, right? To be patient with us when maybe we don't say the exact right thing. I think that's one of the, the great benefits of a church, is that when we think of our relationship with God, and Paul in First uh, Timothy, he even talks about how, how, how Jesus Christ, one of his kind of ministries to us, is that Jesus is patient with us. Well, when we think about and meditate on Jesus' patience with us in our sin and our brokenness, I mean, how much more so should we be patient with each other and to walk with each other even when we don't have everything perfectly figured out? Well, let's look lastly at this last section. It is the weirdest section. I'm going to punt on some of these because I'll be frank. I'm going to hedge my bet. There, are, there is one story that is the weirdest story in your entire Bible, okay? You can talk with me afterwards and I'll elaborate more. But turn with me to chapter 4, verse 18. And we're going to look at God's faithfulness on display. Moses went back to Jethro his father-in-law, and said to him, please let, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt. And uh, for all the men who are seeking your life, they're dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when, when you go back to Egypt, see that you... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I, I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of the blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Clear? Moving on. (laughs) Then the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. So this last section is a travel narrative, right? It starts in chapter 3 with Moses and Midian, and now we get Moses back in Egypt. He he talks to his father-in-law and says, hey, I I need to go meet with my brothers. Moses is probably stretching the truth a little bit. Let's give Moses a break, okay? And then we have this repeated um, conversation that God speaks again to Moses, or it could be that he's remembering what God spoke earlier, that he's to go to Pharaoh and do these various things. He's to go to the leaders and the elders of the Israelites in Egypt and gather them together and say, hey, here's the plan. Show them the signs. 
Then we see that the Lord calls Israel his firstborn son. And we have this sort of lex talionis, which is, which is basically that the punishment fits the crime. And we see that God says, hey, Israel, they're my people. These are my sons. If you don't let them go, your sons are going to be punished. So you punish my sons, I'll punish your sons. Do you see that divine justice going on here? Then we have an instance of a woman circumcising her 40-year-old son. That might have been awkward. We'll get into that in a sec. And then it ends with Aaron meeting up with Moses. They arrive in Egypt. They then say all that um, God told them to do and say, and they believe and they worship. That's That's the sort of travel narrative. But I want to point out that in these two chapters, and particularly in this section, it's dense with promises. Did you notice this? Over and over again, God is given promises. There's like a dozen of them. Things like, I'll deliver you. I'm going to give you a land. Um, as a sign, you, we're going to get back to this mountain one day. God says, oh, um, uh, you, you, you stumble. You're not great at speech. Okay, I'll, I'll give you Aaron. Oh, you're worried that they're not going to believe you? I promise you that when you gather the elders, they will believe. I mean, over and over again, God, God says all of these amazing promises. And so we're sort of wondering, like, is God going to deliver on his promises? Moses is straddling two realities that is the same, like, reality that we're straddling. Because in these chapters, there's at least, but I think there's more than this, but there's at least two promises that God fulfills right here in these two chapters. God says that he'd send Abraham by divine messenger, and we see that starting in verse 27 of chapter 4. God, God, God also says that back in chapter 3, verse 18, that um, you're worried that they're not going to listen. I promise you that the elders will listen to you. And then we end with the elders listening to them. So God made these lofty promises, and we see two instances where God actually delivers on his promises. And yet for, for the couple of promises that God delivers on, there's more promises that God has not yet delivered on. And so Moses is standing in between two realities. God's fulfillment of promises and God's yet fulfillment of promises. And he's straddling those two realities saying, okay, God was faithful in the past. Will God be faithful in the future? Isn't that our reality too? There are many promises that God has fulfilled preeminently in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet there are so many promises that are yet fulfilled in Christ. And so we too straddle those two realities. And so I think it's wonderful as, uh, we don't know if Moses did this, but it's wonderful to, to, to remember back on those times in which God was faithful. God fulfilled his promises, right? I'm not a journaler by nature, but what a gift the spiritual discipline of journaling is, right? Because you see God's faithfulness in the past that, such that it fortifies And reminds you of God's faithfulness in the presence as you long for and look to God's faithfulness in the future. But more than this, if if you really want to know, can I trust God? Well, the greatest extension that you can know if you can trust God actually comes in verse 22 and 23. And this is when God calls his people sons. Now, in the Old Testament, what is the sign of sonship? Circumcision. That is one of the signs that that the God's people were God's people, that they were divine sons of God. 
And so when we get to this weird text in verse 24 through 26, what is this about? Well, here's Moses, part of God's covenantal people, and he didn't even circumcise his son. He was cut off from God's people in Midian. And so his wife, figuring this out, says, I better circumcise my son. And you see that the son is spared. Well, circumcision being the sort of divine kind of outward expression or or the divine seal and right of sonship in the old covenant, well, the new covenant also has a sign and seal of sonship. It's the Holy Spirit. A greater sign and seal of sonship than circumcision. Far greater. That we can cry out to God because of the Spirit, Abba, Father. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So so if you're wondering, will God come through on these promises? Preeminently the promise that, that we can be in God's presence forever, that we can be unified, forgiven, all of these lofty promises. Well, let me just put before you the greatest sign and seal of that reality, which is the seal of sonship that you received when you were regenerate, got a new heart, when you were sealed by the Holy Spirit yourself. That is the seal and the ultimate promise that God will fulfill everything and more. That's what I think is going on here. It's a sort of foreshadow of what God's going to do. It kind of explains God's justice scale, that if you mess with my sons, I'm going to mess with your sons. But it's also a reminder that God's people have a sign. In the old covenant was circumcision. And in the new, it's, it's the Spirit. It's God himself who indwells us such that we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. That's God's faithfulness. He gives promise after promise. Some he fulfills in our lives, like Moses. Others, he calls us to trust in him. Trust in him and keep on trusting in him. It's hard to change. It's really hard to change. Especially when you think of even moral change. That's hard. And just kind of trying and using effort, that doesn't often work. But what does work is when you're confronted with God himself. And when you see his goodness, when you see his patience, when you see his faithfulness, well, we get what, how the story and how this chapter ends. You begin to worship God and be transformed into God. If you want to change, and I think we all do, if you're terrified of change, which we all are to some degree or another, know this. That the greatest change, the greatest change we can experience always comes when we come into contact with God himself who speaks to us as God spoke to Moses and then having spoken to us, changes us. That's why we sit under his word. That's why we gather every Sunday to hear from him because we want to be changed by him so that we can go out into the world and be salt and light. Let's pray. God, we, um, we know and acknowledge, as it was for, for Moses, we are all reluctant to change in various ways. And yet, Lord, we are so grateful that, that we encountered the unchanging God who came to us and delivered us from the, from the 
from our sin, our brokenness, transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us this morning, that you would remind us not only that you delivered God's people from the enslavement of the Egyptians, but you delivered us through Christ and our faith in Christ from the enslavement of our sin. Thank you for that gift. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.